message for us this morning, Johnny. We really appreciate it. Over to you. All right. Um, hopefully everyone can hear me okay. Uh, yeah, it is a, an interesting morning. I was just thinking that, I think it was the first time I went to Zoom church, I was up preaching again, so it always feels a bit weird doing it this way, but um, maybe I'm just just lucky that way. Um, so despite the unusual circumstances, it is really a pleasure to be with you all. Um, and we are carrying on in our series looking at some of the prayers of some significant characters from the Bible. I was initially intending on talking about Paul and his prayer for the Ephesians but with this lockdown, I've sort of felt a bit redirected toward a, a different character and a, and a different part of scripture. So for the next sort of 20 minutes or so, um, I'd like to just share a little, a few thoughts on the life of Moses, um, but particularly reading through the lens of one of his early prayers uh, in Psalm 90. So I, I was thinking if I was going to give this talk a title, I'd call it Moving from Despondency to Hope, which uh, perhaps selfishly as a sermon that I feel like my soul needs to hear this morning. Um, and I've spoken to a number of people as well who have sort of described their mood as being a bit despondent. Um, and I, yeah, so I certainly count myself among them. Uh, and this, this idea of despondency is an interesting one. I sort of did a little bit of reading on it. And um, this early Christian hermit called Evagrius Ponticus wrote extensively on the subject of despondency, which he called the noonday demon. And he observed that some of his monks or some of the monks that he was leading were unable to endure any of their ordinary tasks, whether it was prayer or, or just menial jobs. They couldn't endure any of their tasks for any sustained duration. And instead of getting on with their work, he'd find them sitting outside their, their cells and um, just staring listlessly at the sun. Uh, he noticed that these monks seemed to disdain their surroundings and any tasks placed before them. And as he watched them, Evagrius came to this conclusion that they were suffering from a kind of uh, crippling inward condition that was draining them of all of their life and vitality. So the monks were suffering from this noonday demon that he he, he called it, um, and they sought to escape it by... Um, by excessive sleep and idle conversation or sort of aimless reading. Yet even it seemed like these pastimes lost their appeal eventually and pushed them further and further into kind of, uh, I guess, an anxious idleness. And so, uh, yeah, he called it the noonday demon because he noticed that it seemed to strike the monks between sort of 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., which is kind of interesting. Um, and he wrote on the subject, and I think he's got some interesting conclusions for our time as well, um, he he believed this state of despondency, or uh, was was sort of an, a, came out of this mixture of desire and frustration, um, a frustration towards what is present, and a desire for what is not, and out of this mix of frustration and desire came a sort of general lack of interest or ability to respond to the world and the pressing tasks around us or around the monks. And even, even I think when we know what we should be doing, despondency seems to rob us of our ability to act. So instead of 
responding to life, we behave like these monks and despond instead. In and in, in some ways, I think we have an entire generation or all of us really in this state of despondency as a culture, sort of a turning away from uh, a responsibility to reality and slipping instead into deeper and deeper patterns of escape. So the sort of relentless clicking and scrolling online only deepens our sense of despondency to the world and tends to kind of paralyze us in terms of how do we respond. And, and, you know, even though maybe this kind of condition feels quite contemporary, it's actually very ancient. And Moses, we see, is actually no stranger to despondency. And especially we'll notice this, I think, as we begin to look at his prayer this morning. But encouragingly for us, I think he was someone who was able to move through despondency into a more responsive posture before God. So with that, I'd like to look at his prayer, which is recorded in Psalm 90. Um, and it might be helpful if you've got a Bible to, to flip to that or have a look at it. Um, and I'm just going to share my screen, actually. See if this works. Oh, no, I'm unable to share my screen. Unless Emma can or someone can help me to share my screen. Um, have a look in your Bibles at Psalm 90. Um, I should say I've always found the Psalms or teaching on the prayers of Scripture really difficult. Um, I think because it sort of feels like they're, they're live wires, you know. The Psalms are live wires. They, they almost feel like when you touch them, you get an electric shock. Um, because they're, they're prayers that have been prayed for thousands of years. And it's like all of the historical memory of the Psalms and all of the people who prayed that Psalm seem to somehow be present on the page. Um, you know, in some ways I really prefer looking through the book of Proverbs or something like that, where you've got a nice neat and tidy cause and effect type relationship compared to the emotional world of the Psalms. But I sort of realized, and I have come to realize with the Psalms that, that as we read the Psalms and pray the Psalms, it's not really about our personal experience at the moment that we're reading it. It's much more about learning how to stand in solidarity with the people of God past and present. So in that sense, we learn how to pray Psalms of lament, even where we're not feeling lament because we pray them in solidarity with those who are going through hard times and same with, with joy as well. Um, let's see. Oh, thanks Emma. Okay. So, Hopefully you can see Psalm 90 up here on your screen or on my screen. Um, and I, I've kind of given a bit of shape to this um, as a way for us to, um, to understand um, some, of the, some of the way I think the psalmist and Moses has kind of constructed it to help us to, to read it. Um, so... So the, the indentations give us a sense of where some connections are. Um, like, let me see. It's almost like this is part A. This is part B. Oh, excuse my horrible writing. And this is part C. And this is D. So there's a there's a shape to the psalm, which helps us to sort of make sense of it. 
Um, I'm going to stop sharing. A little background to the psalm. So Psalm 90 is the only psalm attributed to Moses, and it's probably the oldest psalm in the entire collection. Um, And scholars have noted that it has this sort of unique simplicity and grandeur in the language, which is very similar to some of the poetic sections of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And it also sort of thematically seems to reflect Moses' point of view as an intercessor and a teacher. And I have my own theory, and I don't know if it's backed up by very good scholarship or anything like that, but my theory is that this psalm was actually written by Moses before he was called to lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt. So while he was a shepherd in Midian, I think Moses um, prayed this prayer um, before he heard God speaking directly to him from the burning bush. And for those who aren't uh, familiar with Moses' story, he was... He was born, he's, he's a, Jew, a Jew, and he was born in the middle of a genocidal attack against his people. He was adopted into the Egyptian aristocracy, but raised by his um, Jewish relatives. So he would have had a bit of a, he would have had, he would have existed in two worlds. He enjoyed a sort of privileged life in Egypt, educated in the Egyptian system, but also very aware of his genealogy um, as a Jew which bound him together with this enslaved group of people who were toiling away in Egypt in these horrendous conditions. And in Exodus 2 verses 11, uh, it says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them hard at their labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. So Moses was like about 80 years old when he led the people out of Egypt. And this probably means that he spent about 40 to 60 years of his life living as a shepherd in Midian. That's a long, long time. You know, like I guess we kind of overlook the fact that a huge proportion of Moses' life was lived in total obscurity. And he's kind of come from this high Egyptian background um, with a strong sense of justice. And he has tried to enact what he thinks as justice, which has led to a total disaster. Um, and he's been exiled from Egypt. He's, he's taken off and he's kind of down in the dumps, you know, like he, he doesn't know what's happened to his life. He's gonna, he's been, you know, 40 to 60 years as a shepherd gives you a long time to think about your upbringing. It gives you a long time to think about who you are and what your life story is. So I think this is where Moses finds himself. Um, And he knows, you know, he knows that he is a descendant of the patriarchs. You know, he's got a good understanding of the promises that were given to Abraham and the expectations that, you know, 
that after 400 years of slavery, something was going to happen. And he thought he was the one that was going to make it happen, but it just wasn't happening. So with this in mind, I imagine Psalm 90 kind of rising, rising in Moses's heart. Um, so uh, uh, he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born or or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So I think, you know, in this first opening line, which is almost the introduction to the psalm, we see Moses is rooted in this understanding of God as his creator and God as his true home. Moses is living as an exile, far from his people. He's displaced in both a geographical sense, but also in an emotional sense. And he probably feels that mixture of of pain and anger at the present circumstances he finds himself in and desire for what he doesn't have. So he has frustration at the present and desire for what he doesn't have. So he's feeling despondent. He knows he's not where he needs to be. And yet he begins the psalm with an affirmation that despite all of these feelings that are churning inside of him, he knows he belongs to God and he always has. But then his mind turns again to this present state and his failure to be the liberator he always thought he was supposed to be. And he, he seems to begin to reflect on the absurdity of his circumstances. And he says in verse three, you turn us back to dust and say, turn back you mortals. And I think this, this reflection of Moses is really um, connecting us back to the, the the story of the curse in the Garden of Eden. So in Garden in, in Genesis two, we see the story that God forms man, or in the Hebrew it's Adam, out of the dust of the ground, which in Hebrew is Adama. So Adam out of the Adama and breathes life into him. And when the man and woman take and eat the forbidden fruit, God says, Cursed is the ground, the Adama, because of you. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat of it until you return to the ground. But out of it, you are taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. And again, in Genesis 4, we see this alienation of humans, Adam, from the ground, the Adama, being amplified in the story of Cain and Abel, where Abel's blood is received by the ground and Cain is cursed from the ground. So all of this is just to say, if Moses is the principal author of the book of Genesis and these early stories of the first family, he's the one who put those stories together. Um, it seems like Psalm 90 has some strong connections back to these themes of the human predicament being, you know, destined to turn back into dust. Um, this connection to the ground and to yeah, the dusty nature of humanity. So Moses then goes on in verse four to say to God, he begins to address God, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning, it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. So here I think Moses is is really just emphasizing how radically different God's view and experience of time is compared to our experience of time. 
And this picks up on this important theme of the transience of life when, when viewed from a human perspective. Moses suggests that like a thousand years for God is, is like a day. For, you know, a thousand years for us is like a day for God or even a couple of hours. Um, it makes me think about all of the long nights and long days that Moses would have spent out in the land, working the land, contemplating what had happened to the grand plans for his life, you know, the sense of the circularity of life. And you know, even though I think it seems perhaps a bit bleak, um, there is something encouraging here for us. Uh, we live in a culture that increasingly has a sense of dread about the future, which I think means everything seems to be held with a sense of urgency and anxiety. We have no idea Really, like Emma was saying, we have no idea what the world's going to look like in six days or six weeks or six months. You know, we live with this great sense of uncertainty, but God doesn't live with this sense of uncertainty. God is involved in time. He becomes involved in time, but he's not a prisoner of time, which means that he knows the end from the beginning. And, you know, after reflecting on the, the human experience of, of life's transience and the general pattern of things that tend towards decay, Moses begins to now reflect on his own experience of alienation. And he says to God in verse seven, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. You know, it doesn't feel very encouraging perhaps at this stage of the psalm, but um, there's a, there's a Walter Brueggemann, uh, a, an Old Testament scholar, has suggested that the psalms, the whole book of psalms, can be divided up into three main types. There's psalms of orientation, there's psalms of disorientation, and psalms of new orientation. Um, and these three types of psalms have different functions. So psalms of orientation affirm the sovereignty and goodness of God from the position of experiencing the settled sense of God's work in our lives and in the world. And then we have psalms of disorientation, which, as you can imagine, are the prayers that, that are prayed when this neat and tidy world gets knocked to the ground and nothing seems to make sense, either in our life or in, in our life of faith. Um, the thing is, though, the journey towards a more mature orientation always involves journeying through this process of disorientation. As much as we would like to bypass disorientation on our way to new orientation um it, it's not possible um, this process of of coming to a new orientation in god involves going through disorientation and so what moses is experiencing here is a profound sense of disorientation um, and what the psalm is showing us is moses's prayer process through disorientation um Yes, so his settled life in Egypt has been shattered to pieces. His simplicity of life has given way to a painful complexity. His experience of life at this point feels like living under the wrath of God. And in a way, if we think again of Genesis 3 and think of Moses writing these things, 
this is a, a, a kind of a good and true description of what life is like in a broken world. Our failures, you know, our personal failures almost are like the body of that dead Egyptian. They're laid bare before us and we know and God knows and the community knows and we can all see it. We know that it's wrong. So in verse 11 of the psalm, we kind of reach the lowest ebb of Moses' descent into this painful reality check. (laughs) He says in verse 11, If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. And this is actually Moses' prayer. He's saying, if only we knew this. And it sounds like kind of a strange thing to pray, a very strange thing to pray for, you know, show us, you know, if only we knew the power of your anger. Um, But here I think Moses is really asking to be led into God's point of view on the matter. He knows He knows what he needs, which is this new orientation. And this new orientation will only come through um, the illumination of the holiness of God. And from here, we are led into really the the crux, the the central point of Moses' prayer, which is in verse 12. And he says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses, Moses has suffered. You know, and now at last he's found what he really wants from God. He's really found his voice. What he wants to know is to understand the fleeting nature of life so that he can gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, he doesn't want to live in the illusions about life anymore. He doesn't want to think that a thousand years is a long time or an afternoon is a short time, but he wants to gain God's view on life. And from this request, Moses then sort of returns to address this issue of the alienated existence of humans. But now he's addressing it from the point of an intercessor. He begins to pray for himself and for his people. And he picks up the same, the very same language that he was using in verse 3, where God says, turn back, you mortals. But this time, Moses turns it back to God. And in verse 13, he says, turn, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. So here Moses is affirming his deeply rooted trust in the goodness of God. He knows that he is dust addressing the divine. But he also knows that this is the God that breathed life into that dust. And this God loves his people tenderly and steadfastly. And I I love that, that idea that Moses is expressing in verse 15, you know, make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us for as many years as we've seen trouble. He's saying, you know, Insofar as my life couldn't sink any lower, insofar as I couldn't get into a darker space than I'm in right now, I know that you're going to invert that. You know, as deep as I'm going to go, you're going to lift me as high, you know. Um, And this is really the Christian hope, I think, in a nutshell. You know, we know that we see this in Christ, that he descended to the very bottom of the ladder. You know, he couldn't go any lower than he went, being obedient unto death. And he showed that this kind of descent down 
this cruciform way of life is the path to real life, to real, true, um, and high life. So Moses is saying, you know, and as much as I've suffered, transform that, Lord. And he's also casting a new lens on the on the wrathfulness of God, which he described in verses 7 and 10. You know, from a distance, God's holiness might be seen as wrath, but in the space of the of the intimacy of a covenant relationship, Moses now sees that the heart of God is steadfast love. So from this new orientation, Moses concludes his prayer in verse 16. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor or the beauty of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So here, in contrast to the to the kind of meditation on the transience of life that he had in verses 3 and 6, Moses asks that God would intervene into history, you know, that, that, that God would interrupt the sense of the circularity of life, that he would make his deeds known to his people, and that he would show his favor to his children and bring permanence to our lives so that we would not be like the grass, um, that he would free us from this, but that our work would be established by God himself. And I think that's kind of interesting in the, in the context of uh, a people who are slaves, you know, they, they are living in a sense that their work is meaningless. Everything they do is for someone else. But, but, but here Moses is saying, you know, establish our work and that, and the verb he uses is um, kind of uh, the a Hebrew word Conan, which means dynasties, you know, like on enduring work, enduring legacy to the work, um, not stuff that's going to be swept away by time. So Moses has, journeyed in this um and he's showing us how to journey through disorientation and to be and he's beginning to glimpse this new orientation and he's interceding here in this um with a newfound confidence in god's goodness and in god's desire to act and we know that you know when we read the book of exodus we know that god does act you know we know that god does make good on this promise and he does step down into history and he does set his people free so to conclude, what we've learned, I think, in this study is um, what Moses is showing us is a bit of a pattern to prayer in terms of how to move from despondency to hope. So I think if we, wanna, uh, if we want to follow Moses's approach, then the first step in that process, if we look at the psalm, is to acknowledge our frailty and to you know relinquish our desire to control the circumstances you know at at times like this with the pandemic and the reality that it's that it's back and it's actually never went away in the first place it's just part of our life um we can feel despondent but but the beginning step is to is to realize that you know that we don't have control um because despondency is an expression of frustration at the present and desire for the future. It's ultimately a matter of us wanting to control the time and space we find ourselves in, instead of just, you know, learning to accept that it really is in God's hands. And I don't mean that we need to be passive, um, but I do mean that we need to realize that God is in control. 
So moving from despondency to hope means responding to the present moment and searching for God in the present moment rather than looking for him in the past or looking for him in the future. We despond when we thank God somewhere else. We respond when we realize he's right here with us. And I think the second step um, that Moses shows us in this prayer is in this movement from despondency to hope is to, you know, meditate on God's holiness, on his splendor, on his beauty, on his majesty, on his transcendence. Because from our view of time, it all feels very circular. But God speaks to us in time from eternity. He doesn't wear a, a wristwatch because he, he knows exactly what time it is. He He's never in a hurry. He's never late. His ways are not our ways, as the as Isaiah says. You know, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And also his anxieties are not our anxieties. His frustrations are not our frustrations. His desires, so much of the time, are not our desires. But as we meditate on who he is and seek his space, you know, rather than just the good things he brings us, then I think we begin to see our lives in response to him. So we respond to him rather than despond to him. Playing with the word a bit much there, but um, anyway, and and I think as we you know as we reflect on our frailty, reflect on the fact that we don't have control, reflect on the beauty and majesty and transcendence of God, we begin to settle deeply into this meditation that God is at work at His pace and time, and we're just invited to recall our place as His children, chosen and formed by Him and dearly and steadfastly loved by him. And suddenly we'll find ourselves turning this corner in the psalm, just as Moses turned a corner in his life, a corner from disorientation to new orientation, where God is at work and we begin to see that God is at work. And as we realize this, we um, we begin naturally to respond to the world again with hope. The, the work that we're doing in our lives, the work that we're doing as a church, the work that each of us are doing as individuals is not wasted. Um, and N.T. Wright puts it beautifully, and I'll, I'll finish with this quote, but he says, you know, we, N.T. Wright says, we're not oiling the machines, that we're not oiling the wheels of a machine that is about to roll over a cliff. We're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. We're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. We are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a handicapped child to read or to walk every act of care and nurture of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter one's fellow non-human creatures and of course every prayer all spirit-led teaching every deed that spreads the gospel builds up the church embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of jesus honored in the world All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God 
into the new creation that God will one day make. So what the psalm and what Moses' life, I think, is, is inviting us into today is to reflect, is to honestly reflect on where we're at, you know, to feel the, to feel that sense of, of frustration at the present, you know, of desire that we wouldn't be here again. And yet to remember that, that God is at work and that our job is to live, you know, and to live as his children, responding to his creation, responding to his work, knowing that he is working, even when it feels like everything is in chaos. (laughs) So that's, that's my prayer for us, I guess, as a people that, that we would be, yeah, that we would be honest with ourselves about how we feel, but also not despondent, not stuck in despondency, that we would truly and sincerely be working. So I'll pray and then I'm going to hand it over to Lloyd, who's going to lead us in communion. So Lord, thank you for, thank you for the way you're at work in mysterious ways. Thank you that even though we may feel frustration at the present and desire for something new, that you are inviting us into your view on things. So Lord, I just ask that you would help us as a church to open our eyes to to what you're doing here, to what you're doing through this pandemic, um, to what you're inviting us into. And Lord, I thank you that you make good on your promises. Even when we feel like we're in exile or we feel like we've been given something and it just hasn't come to light or told something and we're not seeing it. Thank you that you have the time. Help us to just trust you like little children this morning. And we just, we bless the work you're doing, Lord the mysterious work you're doing, even when we don't understand it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.